Welcome to the Murthy teleconference series designed to benefit employers of foreign nationals. We would like to take this opportunity to remind you that the information you're about to receive is exclusive copyrighted material of the Murthy Law Firm. Accordingly, any unauthorized recording is prohibited by law and cannot be disseminated without our prior written permission. Without further ado, it is our pleasure and honor to introduce attorney Sheila Murthy. Welcome. I'm Sheila Murthy, President and CEO of the Murthy Law Firm. Thank you so much for joining us today. I'm honored and delighted to introduce to you by phone both Adam Rosen and a member of the firm who's been with the firm, I think now at this point, maybe over a dozen years, has maybe, I don't know, 15 years or more practicing U.S. immigration law, brilliant attorney. We call him Mr. Regulations, and he speaks nationally uh, across the U.S. at ELA National Immigration Conferences and other places. And Kenya Sanders, who's also an attorney, and she probably has like 20 or 25 years experience uh, in immigration law. Of course, I, Sheila Murthy, I don't even know. I don't even want to count, but I think between the three of us, we might have clearly over half a century, maybe closer to double of that. Um, so thank you for being here. Today's topic is uh, about H-1B RFEs to discuss with you all the status issues, control issues, specialty occupation, because that's a big deal that's going on. And many of you are unfortunately receiving RFEs or requests for evidence, um, especially when it's with respect to CAP subject cases. It's even more unnerving because you've been lucky to be selected in the CAP, and now you have to deal with this uphill battle. Um, you know, previously, I would say five, seven, ten years ago, very small percentage of cases, maybe 5% to 10% may have received RFEs. Last year, it was about 25%. And this year, in 2016, we expect it to be even higher. Um, also, we found that at the Murthy Law Firm, the cases that have been selected for the cap this year has been almost at the rate of 45%, which is very close to one in two, which is actually better than it was last year when it was closer to one in three, I believe. Um, but it's interesting, and I'm sure each of you have, depending on the volume and the cases, but again, we're sharing the information with you as of now. Who knows when the ultimate uh, decisions are made, whether the, as many, all of those cases that have been selected will actually get approved, because all of us have seen that that is not what is happening. Uh, so the major problems or issues that we have been seeing, and I'm sure you all have been seeing, with respect to RFEs, are one, maintenance of status, two, the right of control, three, specialty occupation, and four, questions about the credentials in experience-based evaluations. So with that, I'm going to ask Adam, if it's okay for you, Adam, sure. to get started on what are the sorts of issues that employers need to be concerned about to show that the employee has maintained status. So the biggest issue that comes up in a CAP subject H-1B for maintenance of status is in connection with people who are transitioning from F-1 to H-1B. And so this comes up as a question because USCIS, one, this year we've seen that USCIS has identified in the RFEs, even when they're not asking about maintenance of status, they're actually identifying in the headline of the RFE that this is a student 
who is moving to H-1B. So even when they're not actually questioning status, they do look and they see that this is a student. So are you saying that some of the biggest problems are primarily those switching from F-1 student status to H-1? Yes, and I think that USCIS is flagging these cases as students in order to look to see whether or not there is a problem with their maintenance of student status. And I think the main er- one of the main areas that this comes up in is in connection with the type of work authorization called Curricular Practical Training, or CPT. Now, CPT can be defined in, in a bunch of different ways, but the main ways that it comes up is some kind of work study or internship that is offered by a sponsoring employer through a co-op agreement that they have with the school. It's been authorized by the school's DSO. They issue an I-20 for it. And there are certain requirements for it, but most commonly that we see is you have a graduate student is allowed to participate in CPT without having completed an academic year of study if the graduate program requires immediate participation in the CPT. And this is one of the main questions that the Immigration Service is asking. They do have a, a standard list of documents and information that they're asking for in these RFEs. Um, it usually tends to run a bulleted, bulleted list of about a page and a half um, to two pages of what they're asking for. Um, but this is sort of the, the core of what they're, what they're looking at. Right. And a lot of the times the problem comes in because some of the DSOs may not be as knowledgeable about the CPT rules because we are seeing a denial of change of status even when a DSO has signed the I-20 for CPT employment because the USCIS seems to suspect that some DSOs and all the students are using CPT to get around the rules of work authorization. You can argue that the student complied with all the rules and got I-20 signed by the DSO, but even in that instance, USCIS may still deny the change of status request. Well, that's a little scary. Thank you for the um, providing that information, uh, Kenya. So what are the kinds of documents uh, that we need to provide in the RFE to try to get over it? And so we've seen that providing, for example, the employer cooperate co-op agreement, uh, second, the evidence from the school or the university that CPD is an in, is integral to the program and or receiving academic credit for doing that CPD, third, that the student was authorized by the DSO on the I-20 prior to having started any employment, and fourth, any other academic work that was completed for CPT, for example, a paper reflecting the internship and how it was relevant to the academic program would obviously all be very helpful. So now from CPT, let's go to the OPT, because that's the other question that's often investigated under a microscope. Right. So actually, what we've seen is USCIS asking more questions about OPT um, in the last year and a half. Um, not as much as CPT, but it's still it's still a question. Now, if some so if you're using OPT or let's say STEM OPT, which may be more common now that there is the 24 month STEM OPT, USCIS can ask for evidence that the U.S. degree is related to the OPT work. Now, this tends to be a problem 
if you're using a combination of education or a combination of education and experience to have the equivalent to a related degree for the H-1B job. So let's say you have, so what we see as a problem, just to sort of illustrate and explain a little bit better, is let's say you have somebody who files their H-1B petition, they're on OPT, and the job is, let's say, a software developer, and the evaluation that was submitted is a combination of education and experience to a bachelor's degree in computer information systems. The problem comes up is that if that person's already working on OPT in that software developer position, then USCIS issues an RFE and says, hey, you got this OPT based on your degree in, um, let's say, chemistry. Okay, so that might be something that would qualify for a STEM OPT even. But let's see, but it's not necessarily related to IT work, and that's why you got the equivalent based on education and experience to computer information systems. But what the RFE on the HME petition is asking, show us that since the OPT is, to, is supposed to further the degree that you got, and your degree that you got is chemistry, show us that your chemistry degree is related to the software developer work that you're doing. And so that can be a bit more challenging and can create a problem because if you cannot show that the actual degree awarded, equivalency aside, the actual degree awarded is related to the work you're doing now before October 1st, USCIS will deny the change of status requested. A good, and it's a good point. It's unfortunate. But the reason is really, as we probably discussed with you in prior multi-law firm teleconferences, is the definition of specialty occupation requires that the person should have a bachelor's degree in this specific field in which the person works to define it as a specialty occupation. And so if you don't have it in the example that Adam just gave with a bachelor's in chemistry and doing computer science related work, programming, coding, and computer software engineering work, then you have a complete mismatch, which would obviously then could potentially result in the denial. Right. Okay. So now we talked about the maintenance of status and touched upon that. Now let's go to the next topic or the next point that is often raised in RFEs, the right to control, because we've been seeing this issue over and over again about you know, show us the employer-employee relationship, show us that the employer actually controls the work of the employee, particularly when you have consulting company type of arrangements with the employer, the vendor, and the end client or the EVC model. So Kenya, can I have you speak a little bit about that? Because USCI is asking specific questions about the evidence. Now, even in a situation where you have provided um, extensive evidence, they can come back and, and ask for additional evidence or specific evidence. So you have to actually carefully read the RFE because USCIS sometimes buries the actual question in the highly templated RFE language. We are seeing RFEs requesting evidence of end client documentation, even where alternate evidence was provided. They'll ask for contracts, statements of work, and they would say, even when uh, other evidence was provided, they would say that no evidence was provided if the evidence that they want is not has not been provided. So we can actually provide examples uh, if anyone requests of these types of RFEs. The most difficult issue that petitioners face when um, USCIS comes and asks for in-client 
uh, evidence is that end users, which are the end clients, are not parties to the initial petition, especially when there is a mid-vendor involved. So they are very often reluctant to issue detailed letters or contracts or statements of work or, pro or provide other confidential information. Hmm. So the, the issue, um, as Kanye was talking about, the issue of um, alternate kinds of documentation was addressed a bit by USCIS a couple of years ago in a 2014 open house at the California Service Center. And USCIS said that while documents from the end client may help USCIS decide whether a valid employer-employee relationship will exist, the documentation is not required. And the, the petitioner can submit a combination of documents to show by a preponderance of the evidence, which is the legal standard, that the required relationship will exist for the period that you're requesting H-1B time. So it's important to submit as much documentation as you as you possibly can. Sometimes there's just things that don't exist and are not available. Um, but the idea is to gather as much material as you can to show the immigration service that you as the, the petitioning company will be the employer that has the right to exercise control. I guess you have so, to do the best you can with whatever evidence you can provide and obviously hope that something will stick. And a lot of times we've shown, depending on the situation, different kinds of evidence and been fairly successful here at yes. the Murthy Law Firm. Right. I mean, generally, they USCIS follows the June 2010 Newfell Memo analysis, uh, where they don't require specific evidence, but they suggest kind of list of a series of 11 factors to consider. They look at contracts, work orders, service agreement, insurance between petitioner and employee to, you know, to just cite a few of them. So employers should, you know, as we discussed, try to, you know, provide the best evidence. And if best evidence isn't available, like contracts and in client letters, uh, explaining all the details of the project, I mean, those are the best evidence. The petitioner to, should try to get an email confirming the end client's refusal to provide the more detailed info USCIS asks for. Well, that actually helps because then it shows that there is an end client when they say, sorry, our company policy does not allow us to provide additional information. Well, that means that there is a relationship and they've sort of confirmed it through the backdoor method. Right. Okay. So now let's jump to the next issue, which we're all seeing, which is specialty occupation. So the question really is, is this person really, really doing work that's considered a specialty? And USCIS, we're seeing more and more, is taking a restrictive interpretation of what specialty occupation means compared to what they had been allowing a few years ago. They still rely on the OOH, or Occupational Outlook Handbook, for guidance. And, but, and typically, when USCIS issues an RFE on specialty occupation, one of the things that they're almost always asking for are more detailed job duties and they want an approximate percentage of time that the individual is going to spend, the worker is going to spend on the particular job duty. So even if you've provided duties to USCIS initially, which you certainly should, um, they're going to ask for more. And you're essentially looking at what you submitted to begin with, and you want to provide more detail in relation to those particular responsibilities because you certainly don't want to be making any changes, but you want to provide 
more elaborate details, and an approximate percentage of time that's going to be spent. Now, whether the job requires um, a degree and whether the, the uh, sponsored H-1B worker has a bachelor's degree or equivalent in a specific specialty is the other, the other issue, as Sheila mentioned before, that the Immigration Service is looking at because to qualify for H-1B specialty occupation, it's not just that you have a degree, but that the job it requires a degree and that the degree you have is related to this work. And so USCIS often raises this question when a company is offering an IT position to a worker who has a degree that the Immigration Service thinks is unrelated to the job, or sometimes, as Sheila said, they look at the OOH when the job code on the LCA indicates to the Immigration Service that something less than a bachelor's degree might be the normal requirement. So they're going to be asking this question not just for more detailed duties, but also show me that the job requires a bachelor's degree, that the degree is related to the job. And what we've seen in examples is where a lot of times a bachelor's degree, for example, in a computer or information science field is common, though not always a requirement. So some firms, for example, will hire analysts with business degree, a bachelor of business administration, or even sometimes a liberal arts degree. So they have the required skills in IT or in computer programming. And the USCIS comeback is, hey, if a bachelor's degree in computer science or information technology was not required as a minimum for entry into that particular profession or occupation, then guess what? It is not a specialty occupation, and hence we're going to deny the H-1B petition. So strategically, an H-1B employer, when you're sponsoring somebody and you're classifying the job, you want to be looking at what the OOH says about the occupation. You want to, you know, you certainly, you're, you're not making up jobs out of thin air, but when you have a job and you're describing it, you want to look at the different kinds of occupations that the Department of Labor lists. And when you're picking an occupation, if you think that there's two occupations that works and there's one that does normally require a bachelor's degree that seems like a better fit, um, sometimes an employer might be inclined to, to pick one that might have a lower wage thinking, oh, well, this works. Um, but in the end run, it might end up losing you your H-1B approval because it might not be an occupation that normally requires a bachelor's degree. And especially if you do normally require a bachelor's degree for this position, it, it can be definitely beneficial and, and worth a worthwhile investment to pick the occupation that Department of Labor says does normally require a bachelor's degree because when you get that RFE, it helps you respond. I think it's a very good point. So, for example, titles like software engineer, computer engineer, good, because that means you require an engineering degree in most likelihood. Software developer, probably still very good. But when you have like word like term like computer systems analyst, it may not be so great because there are lots of computer system analysts computer systems analysts who don't necessarily have to have a bachelor's degree. And as Adam said, while it's tempting to go with a lower wage, you don't want to end up losing the entire case. Right. Then now on the flip side, some RFEs are also asking for whether the beneficiary qualifies for the specialty occupation. So they don't have a question about whether the occupation is specialty occupation, but they look at the degree. So they're focusing on the beneficiary's field of study. In strong cases, there is a strong and clear nexus between the specialty occupation job and the beneficiary's field of study. However, when there's not a clear nexus, for example, if the uh, beneficiary is working in IT with MBAs, even with an IT concentration, are getting more scrutiny. 
USCI is also questioning whether engineering programs are related enough to qualify for IT For example, civil or mechanical engineering. Exactly, Mm -hmm. exactly. So strong cases for IT positions are where the beneficiary has a degree in computer science or a very closely related field like information systems, even mathematics would qualify that person for, uh, for IT field. Evidence employers can provide if questioned, you know, whether there is a nexus exists between the beneficiary's degree and the job offered, they can um, get a expert opinion letter from a professor who provides degrees and trains students for uh, positions in that field. They can provide job advertisements by other companies for similar positions requiring uh, degrees in a specific field. Uh, and they can also provide educational documents of their current or former employees that they have uh, they have employed in a same or similar occupation. Okay, so these are all different kinds of evidence. And another trend that we've been seeing, which I'm sure many of you have been hearing, if you've done any research on the internet, obviously is, uh, and we're getting consultations at the Murthy Law Firm on this issue, is the USCIS is issuing NOIDs, Notice of Intentions to Deny, or Notice of Intentions to Revoke NOIRs, where more than one CAP Subject 81 petition has been filed for the same beneficiary and the same end client, even if it is by different companies or employers, because they're wondering whether you and the other company are either colluding with each other or that you're somehow connected with each other to exchange that information. They basically will do a further investigation. And sometimes that can come back and result in a denial if you're not careful. Right. And so the basic rule, uh, the basic idea um, is that an employer can file more than one H-1B petition for one person. But then a couple of years ago, USCIS changed the law a little bit to say that if the Immigration Service believes that related companies um, may not have a legitimate business interest to file more than one H-1B petition on behalf of the same person, then they can issue an RFE or a NOID. And if in, a, in that situation, if these companies can't demonstrate a legitimate business need, that's the phrase, to file an h one petition uh, for this person, then they deny all the petitions or they revoke all the petitions. And so the purpose of the rule is basically to reduce the incentive to file multiple petitions simply to increase the chances. And USCIS um, created this rule because of the, the, the fact that the cap number hasn't changed and the demand for the cap has increased over the years. And so what we've seen is several noise from USCIS alleging that more than one company is related because they filed H-1B petitions for the same end client using the same exact job description. Sometimes USCIS discovers that two or more companies have the same or similar content on their website. Sometimes USCIS has seen that these two companies may operate from the same um, address. Um, sometimes USCIS has even discovered that the companies are owned by a husband and wife. So um, now the reason and circumstances why these multiple petitions are filed may vary, but USCIS is looking at particular things to identify when these multiple petition situations may exist. And they, they look at them very skeptically. And they, you know, if they see these things that are connecting that make them think that these two companies or more companies that have filed these petitions are in fact just simply a tool to try to avoid the rule against one company filing multiple petitions for one person to increase your odds of getting counted against the cap. They are taking the position that there is not a legitimate business need. And so 
it's important to um, be mindful of that in filing petitions and in looking at and looking at what you're submitting to USCIS because they have found a way to track these whether it's because they're tracking these by the person they're filed for whether they have information otherwise that they haven't revealed um, but this is something that they are wise to and they do understand that companies are trying to work the system and avoid the restrictions of this rule and you know, so there are ways you can do it, but they're very limited. You have to be very careful because if you run afoul of the regulation, there have to there have to be actual different jobs. So I mean, there may be companies <laughs> that may have some kind of connection to each other, but there are two actual and distinct jobs. Maybe a company has has a project in, let's say, San Francisco, California, and another project in um, I don't know, Weehawk in New Jersey. And they, you know, there maybe there's a connection between the two companies. Maybe they're owned by husband and wife. Maybe you know the same person owns both companies, but they are separate corporations because you, the way USCIS has explained it, they're looking at the project that the person is going to be working on. There are two different projects. Then that should not be considered a duplicate or multiple petitions that would result in a denial of the H-1B. Okay, thank you, Adam. So the next topic or the next issue that we've been seeing where USCIS issues RFEs is regarding the credentials evaluations itself about the evaluator. Primarily, it affects experience-based evaluations, but it can also ex uh, affect educational evaluations. So basically, any credentials evaluations. We've seen some RFEs. And by the way, it's not our cases. Majority of the time, these are cases that are coming from outside because other lawyers have filed it without completely understanding and appreciating the complexities and the nuances to make sure that it's done properly is where we see that the RFEs have attempted to impose strict requirements on credentials evaluations by a university or a college professor who is acting as an independent consultant because USCIS then requests documentation to clearly establish the qualifications of the experts and it looks like, Anya, you want to add some other? Yes. I mean, they are requesting, like, specific instances where past opinions by this individual were accepted by authorities and by which authority. They asked to clearly show how conclusions were reached, show the basis for the conclusions with citations of any research material used, asked to provide a letter from the registrar of the evaluator's college or university establishing that the professor is authorized to grant college-level credit on behalf of the institution, holds a bachelor's degree in the field of study that he, he or she is evaluating, and is employed by the claimed college or university. They, they have also asked for evidence that the college or university uh, with which that individual is attached is accredited and for pertinent pages of the institution's catalog showing it as a program for granting college-level credit based on training or experience and evidence of the total amount of college credit that the registrar or evaluator may grant for training or experience. So this is very detailed and yeah, it's extensive. really crazy. It sounds yes. like a lot. And you would think that in this day and age of so much free information available on the Internet that they could themselves do at least a preliminary initial review because they look at a lot of issues through Vibe and other data sources. This would be right. easy to verify, but they want to make sure maybe part of the problem is they've accepted too many cases for the under the H-1B cap. And even though for this year, for example, we've seen approximately 45 percent of the cases may have been accepted. In fact, they may only be able to approve up to maybe 30%. So now they need to deny one out of three of the cases that they've accepted because they um, 
could get the fees and get the processing. If one of us did it, we would be in jail for 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 this. But it looks like the government can uh, do that. And so now they're trying to find uh, look for a needle in the haystack to find some reason to try to issue an RFE or a denial. So remember one thing: as employers, don't ever feel helpless. Don't feel like you have no control in your life, because by law, there's under the rules of evidence, there's the standard called the preponderance of the evidence. What is preponderance of the evidence? That means you, as an employer, need to meet the burden of proof or satisfy the government only a little more likely than not that your position or argument is correct. What does that mean? If you, as mathematical math majors, say that if you look at the evidence being hundred pieces of evidence, if you can show fifty-one percent in your favor, and the government has only forty-nine in its favor, guess what? You've met the preponderance of the evidence. Don't allow the USCIS or the Department of Homeland Security to make it sound like a criminal case where you have to prove your case beyond a reasonable doubt. This is not a criminal case. It's not even a quasi-criminal case where you have to show that your case by clear and convincing evidence. It is a very low threshold with immigration matters, just preponderance of the evidence more likely than not. And don't be afraid to argue that. And hopefully, if you have a good lawyer or legal team fighting for your firm and representing you, they will be able to argue and put forward that argument with the government. And we found that to be very helpful in gray areas when they come back and ask for even more and more and more and more and more. Right, and and USCIS can't dismiss the evidence without specifically explaining why it's not it's not enough. Um, some RFEs or decisions from the Immigration Service state that the petitioner provided a generic description of the duties. Sometimes they say they're not sufficient duties. Uh, even when you've provided more uh, and a more elaborate description and more evidence, um, even testimony from uh, an executive or manager at the petitioner that signed in a penalty of perjury is considered evidence and supposed to be reviewed by the immigration service under this under this standard. So it, you know if they see that there's if there is evidence, they're supposed to explain and they have a problem with it. They're supposed to and required by law to explain what the problem is and why that is not enough for them to approve the case. And generally, you have 87 days to respond, but um, the Vermont Service Center memo on RFEs suggests that the sooner you respond, the better, generally. The USCIS can actually even issue another RFE or a notice of intent to deny. If they issue a notice of intent to deny after you respond to the RFE, you only have 30 days to respond to the um, the NOID. Now, if you're coming to the Murthy Law Firm... Or any good lawyer, for that matter, right, presumably. Uh, you know, to respond, please do so right away, as soon as you receive the the RFE, because then the law firm, you know, has sufficient time to thoroughly, ana- you know, analyze the request for evidence and prepare a very good response. Yeah, and I know some people think like, oh my God, you know, is it an hourly rate? Will I end up paying a lot more? And I tell people if it's a flat fee that you're paying, which most immigration law firms, including Murthy Law Firm does, and by the way, at a, I think a very reasonable and competitive fee, by waiting till the last minute, the fee generally tends to be much more. And you're paying more for less service because now you don't have as much time to brainstorm and come up with really strong arguments and a good case. I tell people, if your attorney is willing to do it for much less and you give a much less fee and you have more time to fight and we can invest a lot more time to try to win the case, why not go to the attorney right up front rather than waiting till two or three or four weeks before it's due and then kind of becoming in a panic 
because nobody can do a great job. Okay, so from there, let's change and talk about some strategic considerations that we sh- that all of us should keep in mind with respect to students, because we've seen student cases switching from F1 to H1 tend to be the most complex or difficult in general. So as you know, with respect to cap gap, students on F1 only get 60 days of grace period. If the H1B it is either denied or withdrawn before October 1st, um, as long as USCIS has not found a status violation. So if the student had optional practical training and was working during the cap gap, the student must stop working 10 days after the denial or the withdrawal. Right. And so this the, similarly, um, OPT provides a benefit in the form of STEM extension. So the 17 extra months that people have had and now with the new STEM role, the 24 extra months, it gives um, students the STEM OPT, um, which provides an additional bite of the H1B cap so that if you've missed it this time, you have more time to try again the next time around. Um, complying with all the rules that um, the Department of Homeland Security has put in place for for the STEM OPT. And again, as we said before, USCIS is asking questions about this. And so the next time around, USCIS will probably be asking questions to make sure that um, if you've been on STEM OPT, you've maintained your status. Right. And if USCIS denies the change of status request for an F1 student from F1 to H1, and the reason they deny the change of status is because they claim they did not maintain F1 status because of the CPT issues we mentioned before. Then the student has to stop working. The student no longer has work authorization, even if she still has validity on their CPT work authorization or the OPT time remaining. And they also will start accruing unlawful presence from the date of the decision of the change of status um, denial with a finding that they did not maintain valid uh, student status. And, mm-hmm. and this is this is a question that we that we get from people um, quite commonly. If USCIS denies the H1B saying that there was a status violation, you can't continue working because your I-20 says you still have another X number of months. You also can't say, okay, well, I'm just going to go back to school and, and transfer my program. No, because at that point, USCIS has made a finding of a status violation. You're occurring on lawful presence. Your only option is to leave the United States. Yeah. So, you know, thank you very much, both Adam and Kenya. We've been seeing a lot of scrutiny, as you guys have probably, especially with respect to H1 consulting companies, um, where USCIS seems to be almost putting you all under the microscope if you're a consulting company that's working with the employer, vendor, and client model. Um, and also, as an employer, you would really want to understand that the F1 student that you are offering, making a job offer to, actually has complied with the CPT and OPT requirements, because otherwise, after investing a lot of time, money, effort, energy in filing the H1 petition, training this person for a year or two, you then find the person, in fact, had violated status and is not eligible now for the H1 within the United States. Uh, though, even if they fail to maintain status, as we had discussed earlier, even if you can get the H-1 petition approved, person would fly abroad, come back, and then continue to, t- to work um, on H-1 status. And of course, the, the final issue that we're all we've discussed is selection for the H-1B lottery, which is a lottery, as we see one out of two or one out of three cases might ultimately get selected and get approved. So as employers, you all have to be extra. We all need to be extra proactive and make sure that things are filed properly, correctly, and try to avoid these RFEs by doing a strong package up front. 
So on behalf of Kenya Sanders, Adam Rosen, myself, Sheila Murthy, and the entire Murthy Law Firm team, we thank you so much for joining us today to understand how to try to respond and understand the H-1B um, scenario that we're all working with. And we really look forward to continuing to help you and your business become successful. Thank you so much for joining us and have a great rest of the afternoon.